you know, you've been tweeting, uh, you know, very uh, aggressively about uh, how much you uh, hate, uh, don't care about the climate and uh, hate, love fossil fuels. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but you've been saying like clockwork. Um, so yeah. I kind of want to dive into that about. Sure. We have another piece coming out on Wednesday on the topic too. So it's timely. Yeah. So I think like talking about why it matters, um, because I think what I'm seeing some people now is kind of writing it off as like, oh, it's just a culture war. It's just about what, you know, what consumer product people are using to heat their homes or cook. And I think, I think we know that it's, it's actually, it's much more than that. Uh, and yeah. it could have made much bigger uh, ramifications than that. Sure. Um, all we'll right. Go. So yep, good. I'll go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, we've got a lot of directions there. Like the piece we're putting out on uh, Wednesday is about this BS um, childhood asthma paper, uh, which we've pivoted to a discussion about how science is broken, you know, peer review, um, too many journals, um, replication crisis and so on. And like, basically you could make, you know, all of the pieces, um, fear-mongering around this, you know, natural gas causes, uh, you know, burning, cooking in the home causes childhood asthma is, is simple, it's total bullshit, but yeah, um, it, uh, it, it just shows you how the sort of the academia media government complex has totally bastardized what science actually is. Like this was a, a meta-analysis of 27 hand-selected papers that were designed to demonstrate an outcome, which the authors have already walked away from after, you know, 500 yeah. You know, headlines around the world so this is all in the same context like because people i think they realize that furnaces are popular so let's make the people who are pro natural gas also pro childhood asthma which is sort of a classic trick of propaganda so yeah one of the aspects i liked of your last piece about this was that it's sort of attacking the um the single family home right mm -hmm. and that's that's sort of uh, goes along with this urbanoid urbanist. Uh, they're they're angry at the people who own single family homes. They're mad at urban sprawl or suburban sprawl, right? They wanna they wanna sort of create this world where everyone's kind of crowded into the cities. Yeah. Yeah. eat the bugs, live in the pod kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, they would prefer to have far less people, but absent the yeah. ability to do that, um, then they want to make life as miserable as possible for everybody else. You're listening to the Space Commune Podcast. I'm Alex with uh, the co-host Fox. And today we have on Doomberg. Doomberg is uh, a group of people that write a Substack. Uh, you can find it at doomberg.substack.com. I know about them because of their energy analysis. They, they have a lot of good analysis on energy markets and uh, things of that nature. And uh, Doomberg is anonymous, but we have Doomberg's spokesperson on today. A uh, We see on Zoom, we see a, a green chicken, a green animated chicken. Uh, that's the anonymous person. And uh, welcome, Doomberg. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I you know it's funny. I see you. I see your uh, pieces pop up all the time, um, and I I assume that you guys had been around for a while because you have such a following. Um, but you you just started what within the last few years or so? Yeah, we we launched our first uh, piece back in May of 2021. So we're coming up on our two year anniversary here in a few months. Uh, but we were free for the first year, and that's how we built our audience. We put all of our pieces out for free. And then in April of 2022, we uh, opened up our paywall for paid subscribers. And then in May of 2022, 
our pieces are now um, exclusively behind the paywall, which we like to say uh, uh, means that we are 100% subscriber supported. And that sure. means we don't have to accept ads or sponsorships and we can have full creative freedom. Um, our free subscribers still see pretty extensive previews to all of our pieces, but to read the full piece, um, that's limited to paid subscribers. And that's been really an amazing journey for us. And we went from a few people with an idea and a, a clip art of a chicken that we colorized to uh, the number one paid substack in the world in the finance category. Wow. And, and among the very top few on the entire substack platform, according to what we've been told by the, the senior leadership of substack, who we've obviously been able to meet and interact with. And, and although we write anonymously predominantly because um, for the brand and also because it, it's just, we we're a team and to have one person represent that, that yeah. brand would be sort of unfair to the rest of the team. And so I'm the head writer and I'm the person who appears on podcasts, but that's just one small part of, of the machine that is Doombird. But it's been the work of our lives. It's been an amazing success. It's been thrilling, humbling, um, life-altering all at the same time. And it's proof that in today's distributed media world, um, you can you can do what you love for a living and make an audience out of it if you sort of have the discipline and the focus and the drive that this team does. And, and I couldn't be more proud of them. That's that's a very hopeful message to people. I mean, people like us who are kind of pursuing the same thing. And I don't think we've had quite the success as Doomer, but you know, I think we're towing a, a slightly different line that might be even harder to to market to the masses. But I think the fact that um you guys have become so popular speaks to the fact um that our energy uh situation here in the United States has become so schizophrenic and 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 that it's run basically in 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 totally irrational, totally unscientific way, uh, that people are kind of craving some voices within the media who are, can be sort of a sane, a sane voice amongst all of the mainstream nonsense, right? Yeah. So I may probably helpful if I gave a bit of background. So we're a team of former executives in the commodity sector, and we have uh, some experience in our consulting firm and advising other content creators who predominantly focus on selling their content into Wall Street, which gave us the inspiration to start our own. One of our key clients sort of encouraged us to start our own. And the differentiating aspect of Doomberg, we believe, at least one of them, is because we come from industry. And so few people who are in industry are free to write as bluntly and provocatively as we are. We can give the inside scoop of how things really work in the real world. And we're not held back by our public affairs team forbidding us to have social media accounts or um, our concern about stock options or towing the company line or being polite in public. Yeah, we were polite, but you get what I'm saying. Like sure. we can we can tell stories and explain complex scientific phenomenon to investors in a language they understand from a foundation of decades of actual experience in the commodity sector. Um, for example. I personally have a pretty detailed molecular map of how the economy works, given my personal experience of leading large teams in the energy sector. Did a lot of work in the renew renewable energy space. We have obviously a lot of critiques in that area, but also some things that we think are worth supporting. But the, sure. the sort of the, the sort of the sort of a, a Vaclav Smeal meets industrial experience meets willing to write about topics that uh, people who come from industry are either not allowed to or afraid to write about. And we get dozens and dozens of emails from industry insiders as we write these pieces, thanking us for, for putting, you know, their voice out there in an effective way. And I, I do think that's the niche. You know, the riches are in the niches, and we've discovered ours. And one of our phrases is, "When you find what you should be doing in life, you just keep doing it." And that's what we intend to do with Doomberg. 
That's very cool. That's sort of like, I mean, we come from a marketing background and and sometimes they call it a blue ocean, right? Where there isn't a lot of concentration and uh, there aren't a lot of competitors in a certain market, but you found, I like that the re- the riches are in the niches, or is that what you said? That's yeah. a very cool phrase. Um, well, so what would you say motivates, motivates Doomberg? What is the I- ideology that is motivating Doomberg that is different that sets you apart from, you know, the the mainstream, what you're, what you would have to do in the mainstream. What is different? What is the different ideological line that Doomberg is pushing? So, you know, the name Doomberg itself was sort of when we were brainstorming the project and you come from a marketing background and for us, brand was a really important, important pillar of our yeah, business. It's like, it's like and, Bloomberg, but with a Doomer quality. Well, it's um, the whole phrase doom scrolling, you know, doom okay. porn, people like, you know, Zero Hedge and sites like that. People- yeah of a certain ilk, um, maybe have some success in life and maybe some children and they're looking to protect it or to, you know, they're worried about, you know, the the way in which society is evolving and maybe that might threaten their current way of life. Um, but there's, we, we're certainly partook in a, in a fair amount of doom scrolling ourselves. And, and we, as we're building the brand, you know, cause we couldn't just be a person, first of all, it's a team. And second of all, just another person on Twitter wouldn't stand out. And as marketers, you know, that that if you, if you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And so we decided to build a character. It was designed to be anonymous from the beginning. And um, we had this concept of chicken little hmm. with a Bloomberg terminal, um, you know, scrolling through the Bloomberg terminal, looking for charts to be afraid of. And uh, and so that's how the name was born. We love our Bloomberg terminals. It's a homage to a wonderful tool. And um, and the name just, you know exactly what you're getting when you when you hear the name. Mm. And, and so the brand was really important to us and, and we built, you know, Chicken Little Gets a Terminal was sort of the, was the, 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 the brand tagline uh, that we developed or so the, the icon around the brand. Uh, and so interesting. Well, Chicken Little was all about the sky is falling, right? Yeah, that's what doom porn is all about. And so uh, and that's what what the environmentalists sound like, right? They sound like the sky is falling constantly, right? Don't look yeah. up. Exactly. Now, we, we didn't start out as a predominantly energy blog, even though we came from that space. We wrote a lot about supply chain inflation and crypto in the beginning, and then the energy crisis happened, and we happened to have some expertise in that area. One thing you'll find is if we don't have pre-existing expertise in an area, we, we rarely uh, wade into the situation. For example, I, we have no medical background on the team, and so we haven't written about COVID or the, or the vaccines. We just have nothing unique to add in that regard, and, and we'll let others fight those culture wars. But uh, on the energy side, um, the other motivating factor for Doomberg was we are deeply pro-human. Um, empathy a- empathy is a key element of our team. And we see the hypocrisy of many of our uh, environmental leaders and their, their sort of hidden objective of basically less humans on the planet. And and we decided that we could be a voice against that. And and it's not without its risk. You know, We are at risk of being labeled as you know, disinformation or misinformationalists. And we are always concerned about getting canceled. Another reason why it's important to be anonymous, because yeah. if you're anonymous, they, they can only argue on, against your ideas and not cancel the people behind it. Sure. Um, one of our strict rules on Twitter to avoid getting into any of these sort of culture wars unintentionally is if we would never write about it, we don't tweet about it. Hmm. And if, if we are prepared to write about it, then it's okay to tweet about it. And if we're prepared to write about it, we have strong opinions on it that we're willing to show our work. And yeah. to back to back with references and data and so on. And so you'll never see us tweeting about anything that we wouldn't write about. And as the rule works the other way, if we find ourselves tweeting about something, but we've not yet written about it, um, we better write about it or we're going to stop tweeting about it. And, that's, and so that's very, very disciplined. Yeah. yeah, no, you guys are very disciplined. That's great. 
That's great. I, I think that's excellent to hear. It's music to my ears to hear that you what is driving you is this pro-humanity message because I feel like that's really the dividing line right now is uh, people get caught up in, like you say, these culture wars of left versus right, um, when really this is the fight. The fight right now is between the human pro-humanity versus the anti-humanity movement. So it's it's wonderful to hear that you guys are are pushing that line. Um, I, I your your coverage of energy policy has been a breath of fresh air, even to lay people like myself. So, yeah, the the the, the difference. One of the differentiating factors of Thunberg is our ability to explain complex, usually technical um, stories and backgrounds in a language that finance professionals and lay people can understand. And yeah. this this arose from our corporate careers and my personal career. I'm a scientist, as I mentioned earlier. And, and one of the things that was a accelerant to my corporate career as I got more and more responsibility was was my ability to explain to investors why they should or should not write a check around a certain technology. And I, I really enjoyed the writing of it, the presenting of it, the the charting of it and the photoshopping and and catching somebody's attention at the beginning of a story. And as you become an executive in in publicly traded companies in particular, your job becomes flying around the world and giving presentations. You know, it's uh, it, it, it really is a symbolic position at some point. There's only so many only so large a team you can manage and still have your hands around what's going on two, three levels below you. And so then at some point you have to hire trusted lieutenants and your job becomes sort of symbolism. And, and in many ways, your job becomes uh, the ambition of 10 people, one level below you to try to get your job. And so like the, the bad in, in the corporate world is that if you have a few relatively well-paid positions that inspires a bunch of people to work to try to get them. And, mm. and so uh, becoming essentially a professional communicator in the science field was the part of the job that I loved doing. The part of the job that I hated doing was restructuring and firing people and you know all the other things that come with 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 cyclical businesses in yeah. in the era of uh, quarterly expectations on Wall Street. And so uh, Doomberg being the work of my life doesn't feel like work. Um, we have this phrase that we use internally, which is what is our um, get to have to ratio. So what what how much of our calendar are things like appearing on a podcast where we feel like we get to do that? I could be on a podcast all day versus uh, the things that we have to do. So, for example, filling out our taxes or pick your favorite monotonous activity that you don't enjoy doing. And we work really hard to both measure and then optimize the ratio of our uh, get to have to because it's just a superior way to live. So I don't feel like writing these pieces is work. My uh, my editor uh, doesn't feel like editing them as work, uh, getting them out and promoting them on Twitter, going on podcasts, that's not work, but we've created a business out of it. And you know, the barrier to entry in this business is zero, but the barrier to success is high. And and last thing I'll say is disciplined execution is still a competitive mode. And, and we work really hard to be very disciplined in our execution across all the pillars of our business. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. It reminds me actually of it com uh, comparing that to the single family housing, right? Is that you build a better society when people have skin in the game, when they feel ownership, right? Over what they're doing and they feel like, you know, they're part of something bigger than themselves. You don't have, if you're doing something that you feel like is contributing to making the world better then you don't feel like, um, you know, you, you work to, you work, you don't live, you don't work to live, you live to work, right? Um, and, and having that sense of ownership and uh, freedom, right, to to do things. And and that's what a single family, that's what single family housing provides to people. But Alex, I think you had a question in there, right? Well, I, I heard uh, the get to have to. And I think this is a good segue that 
something that we all have to do to live is uh, to heat, to have heat in our homes and to cook, uh, to be able to prepare food and, uh, you know, make enough, uh, you know, meals and calories so that we can all live. And uh, I think that's what's going on. The biggest story right now in the American energy world and in uh, the political culture war between the left and the right is about this uh, teasing of a natural gas cooking ban um, in new construction and also banning replacements of natural gas um, furnaces and things like that. Um, in New York State and California, I think actual laws have either been passed or very close to passing. And then news came out magically um, that Biden was considering a national ban um, around the same time that this uh, a study came out about uh, the, the chances of children developing asthma in homes with natural gas cooking was slightly elevated. Um, and I see you've been tweeting quite a bit about this. Uh, it sounds like uh, there's a, a piece warming up uh, for Doomberg about this. Um, so what do you, th I mean, what do you think about the, the rollout of all this? How much of it is organic versus how much of it is something that's been in the works for a long time? So we, we put out a piece every once in a while, you put out a piece and you know, it's a good piece and you feel good about it, but it goes like viral beyond what you could have imagined. And our first piece of the year was kind of a fun one. It was called the home near you. And I'll explain that title in a bit, but um, the, the piece was really about this attack on the furnace that you alluded to, which is, you know, in California, they passed a new regulation that bars the replacement of furnaces once they break after 2030. And this is part of a broader campaign of the environmental left um, to attack the single family home, uh, as you mentioned earlier. And, and, and both parties, by the way, bipartisan, um, have been long in support of the single family home. It's literally a quintessential part of, quote unquote, the American dream. Everyone aspires to it. Look, if you grew up relatively poor, like I did, you can't imagine being able to afford a home. And then someday you actually get one and then maybe you pay off your mortgage and heaven forbid you get a second slice of land somewhere uh, you know, up north that you can escape to on the weekend. That's sort of the quintessential American dream. Um, it's what keeps people working hard. It's what keeps people honest. Like you say, one of, you know, as I drive around the Midwest, um, the size of the home actually doesn't matter to me, but the pride of ownership that the, that you see as you drive by certain homes, you just know, okay, that that's a winning family, right? And and if, if the garbage man came by and took away their trash and spilled some on the, on the front of their driveway, they're going to go right out and clean that up because they're not the type of people that leave garbage strew in front of their homes. Pride of ownership is a foundational attribute of a responsible provider. Um, and And pride of ownership literally means to be proud to own something. And, and ownership is under assault by the progressive environmental movement for the simple reason that in their view, they will not be able to corral the CO2 emissions down to levels that they think are acceptable as long as this many people um, aspire to and ultimately move into single family homes. They would rather um, people be crowded into small apartments with centralized heating you know, the, the, the footprint, you know, everything is within walkable distance. They hate cars and they hate homes and they hate barbecues and they hate your way of life. And so the <laughs> title of the home is that the title of the piece is called A Home Near You was meant to personalize to everybody reading that if you own a furnace and you own a car and you sometimes barbecue in the backyard, you are the carbon emissions they're coming after. Mm -hmm. And and it's always sort of 
um, backhanded and and subtle and 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 so on. And so we we predicted in that piece that the words heat pump would be the words of 2023. Like you would see an onslaught of propaganda. And in fact, you did like very shortly after. So we've been tweeting like clockwork every time we see one of these, um, mostly because we intend to write a couple of follow-up pieces on it. And I wanted to be able to easily search these pieces on Twitter by just searching clockwork from Doomberg T, right? Um, but like clockwork, the propaganda machine has been rolled rolled out and put into overdrive. And, and the latest incarnation is sort of a classic example uh, of propaganda that's easy to detect. So I, I, in my corporate career, um, I, I managed to have to interface with a fair bit of public affairs professionals, given the commodity sector and and, and the assault that it's always under. And uh, there was a, a person who gave me a really great phrase that stick, stuck with me, which is um, hazard equals risk times outrage. And so it's really important to manage the outrage down if you're a corporate or manage the outrage up if you're an opponent to the corporates. And the follow-up phrase from the same person was, and there's nothing more outrageous than puppies and babies. <laughs> and so it's no surprise to me that this paper from the Rocky Mountain Institute, which we're going to write about and publish this Wednesday, a tentative title of the piece is Home Cooking. Um, they're assaulting the, the natural gas for cooking because actually natural gas for furnaces are wildly popular and really efficient and um, many, many people would be highly reluctant to swap out their furnaces for a mediocre performing heat pump. And so um, they've decided that um, they, they're going to make natural gas cooking the target and trying to preposition anyone who's opposed to their ambition to remove natural gas connections from single family homes as being pro childhood asthma. Like that's the sleight of hand that they're doing when in reality, I think the, the article the, the scientific publication was garbage, and it was a meta-analysis of a hand-selected group of studies that were probably flawed, that were designed to create an outcome, and 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 the authors have already sort of walked away from claiming that there was a casual relation, a causal relationship between natural gas cooking and asthma. But that's long after we had this this tsunami of alarmist headlines from the typical media outlets that are designed to scare. Yeah. Um, parents of young children. Look, we are we're all for figuring out where asthma comes from and treating it and preventing it. Um, natural gas is the cleanest burning fuel you know, available. Um, I just it just does. I just don't believe it. Like I simply just don't believe it. And in fact, the most definitive study on the matter on the matter, which was published in Lancet, that the authors didn't even bother to reference, um, surveyed five hundred thousand people in forty countries, and they effectively ruled out any statistical correlation between cooking with natural gas and childhood asthma. Um, the only uh, cooking fuel that was statistically relevant, I believe, was um, was wood burning ovens, which makes sense. I mean, yeah, we've all operated uh, a natural gas stove. Like, the, don't tell me that this is suddenly the root cause of of childhood asthma. But of course, that's the whole that's the whole shtick. Um, what are you pro childhood asthma? How much asthma <laughs> in children is acceptable to you, sir? Right. Um, this, this is the whole positioning, and it, it, you could flag it a million miles away. You know for a fact that if the if they had done the study and and it showed no correlation, they never would have published it. You know they 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 solved for this outcome and they found it, and then the the media machine was pumped yeah. into overdrive. And it's yeah. yeah. And also, I think the political machine that identify you know the Democrats identified that this is one of those issues where it is just so it is so uh, prime in the the lifestyle of 
what you'd picture as a state, you know, the, the prototypical DNC voter is somebody that either has or aspires to electrifying their home, ha you know, wants an EV and can afford one. Um, and just everyone all the way from, you know, AOC down to like the, I've seen lots of local politicians saying this, saying that, oh, well, if you don't like uh, electric stoves, um, you're just not good at cooking. You know, you just must be, you must be some kind of idiot. Um, who doesn't who doesn't care about this? You know, and the biggest thing that I feel like comes up for me with these, you know, bleeding heart liberal superiority complex people is that uh, what they don't what they ignore the 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 actual meat and potatoes of the issue is that it's a pass the buck situation with all these supposedly superior energy, you know, electric. Oh, electric is going to be better because there's no there's no gas involved. I mean, the first thing is like, yes, gas is way cleaner burning than wood that's very obvious you go camping there's a ton of smoke what's worse for asthma a bunch of smoke or a little bit of natural gas that's that's a very clear logical logical thing uh the other thing too is that um the rock you mentioned the rocky mountain institute the minute i saw that they were behind this study my alarm bells went off because uh rocky mountain institute was started by Amory and his wife, Hunter Lovins, who are members of the Club of Rome, which has connections to the World Economic Forum. You could see the ideological, and they're extremely opposed to, Amory Lovins is, is famous for being opposed to nuclear energy. So you can see sort of the ideological through line behind all of this. But really, like what this all boils down to, I feel like, is it's a, it, the Democrats and these sort of bleeding heart liberal kind of, I, I'm better... I'm, I'm holier than thou is, is they pass the buck along because our energy grid is becoming so fragile because we're, we're creating more dependency on using more electricity through these, uh, you know, electric furnace or heat pump or whatever, or electric stove in our house, uh, while actively making the grid less reliable by closing nuclear plants, not allowing new fossil fuel and, overly becoming overly dependent on uh wind and solar i mean what do you what do you think about all that yeah of course and you know we put out a piece um this weekend called rice Aroni where we had the opportunity to interview the incoming ceo of a pretty innovative natural gas uh plant design company that you know their plan is to license this and the technology because they they purify oxygen out of the air before combustion the the natural gas plant produces relatively pure co2 that can be immediately injected into the ground for carbon capture and sequestration and maybe even used for enhanced recovery. And um, after we finished the interview, I was joking with with Danny Rice, the the, the, the incoming CEO of that SPAC, assuming the merger contemplates or consummates, um, uh, that they'll still oppose you because it's like you, you, you've solved the problem, assuming their technology works and we have no reason to doubt it, but they'll figure out some reason to oppose you because it, it, like the intent is is much more Malthusian. They would rather have less people. They don't want to see people flourishing. And if they wanted to see people flourishing, they wouldn't be opposed to nuclear power. And in the piece that we're putting out on the this uh, this nonsense paper on on natural gas heating uh, stoves um, and, and the childhood asthma stuff, it's not actually a critique of their paper because once you once you sort of get into the trenches with them, they've already won. Like it's a 50-50 yeah. coin flip that the paper is true or not. We're in fact using that paper to demonstrate serious deep flaws in what we call the academia media government complex, which rarely practices actual sciences, but routinely abuses the word 
uh, in the name of raw political politics. But then and, they, they finger wag at people and say, oh, you don't yes. believe the science. <laughs> the science, right. And so yeah. the things we're going to tackle in this piece, which which will be out soon, is the peer review process is totally broken. There's way too many journals. There's a, a replication crisis in science. You'd be shocked at what percentage of papers are literally fabricated or not reproducible and have to be retracted. Um, the tenure system is as backwards and and unenlightened as you can imagine with all kinds of social pressures. Imagine trying to get <clears throat> um, research grants in today's uh, academic environment without <laughs> on a topic of trying to show how uh, natural gas is perfectly safe in the home. Like it just you would just wouldn't get yeah. funded. Right. Like you, 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 the, the, it's a solve for function. Well, and, I think about uh, Alex Epstein. I was thinking. I, I know you're a fan of of his work. I I think he's he's doing great stuff. Um, but how funny is that that now there's a guy who's pro fossil fuel and that's like a niche thing <laughs> to be. He, he's to be the pro, outsider to be pro fossil fuel. Whereas that's you know fifty a hundred years ago is like oh yeah of course the big everyone's pro fossil fuel and now it's like this niche thing. It's such a backwards kind of world we live in now. It's. Uh it's testimony to the luxury that we have developed in the Western world that we have the, we have the privilege of being able to try to um, saw off the trunk of our own tree in order to save the branch. Mm. Um, it just, it's just insane that we would be walking away from ultra high density nuclear power supplemented by super useful and high density fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, and we said like, um, we're of the view that it is fine as a society to make the decision that our objective is to optimize the following formula. The total amount of human standard of living we can distribute to the population divided by our carbon emissions. That's mm. a perfectly fine way to organize our society, but it's it's there are two parts to that equation, right? Which is we should be striving to radically improve the standard of living of all humans and also reducing the carbon emission per capita uh, of society. I'm fine. We're fine with that. Uh, there's a way to do that. It exists, requires no invention, doesn't actually require all that much money. It requires a political revolution. And the way to do that is with existing nuclear power technology supplemented by fossil fuels and a bit of renewables where it makes sense. Um, and to have a robust grid and all of the, all of the things that, that we've talked about, look, it's been done before. Ontario has completely decarbonized its power grid. Um, it has predominantly nuclear and hydropower with a a stitch of natural gas and renewables. And and last time I drove through Ontario, uh, it didn't look like a backwards place. There were buildings and people living and restaurants and smooth highways and ATM machines and schools and hospitals and cars. Like it was a very normal looking place. It can be done. The solutions exist. France did it. One thing I saw uh, I think that you brought up in an article was that Germany in this last winter, you know, Germany is gonna make it through this winter. Luckily it's been a mild winter. Uh, they imported enough LNG from the United States. They fired up coal plants. They 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 have troops guarding their lignite mining facilities in Germany from the environmentalists. Um, you know they're they're just gonna make it. And they they're importing enough from France and other you know enough power. Uh, but it cost them half a trillion dollars in an emergency situation to to throw all this together. And that is about the amount of money that they would need to build out nuclear to take care of their their needs for the next hundred years. Oh, far more than they would need. You know, the yes. piece you're, the piece you're referencing is one that we published in late December called "The Whims of Gaia," 
which mm. basically you know, the social preview for that piece um, was a good one. It says gambling on the weather makes for a disastrous energy policy, even when you win. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they won. Like the, I was just pulling up uh, the Frankfurt uh, average daily highs and lows, and it's still in the 90th percentile for warmth. Like basically from mid-December through to mid-January, peak winter season has been, you know, a, a three sigma event to the warm side. And look, we're all for it. Thank God. Imagine how terrible it would have been um, if it were the other way. Um, we have many thousands of subscribers in Europe. We have many friends in Europe. I personally traveled to Germany more times than I could count. I have all the stamps on my passport to prove it. I love the country. It's a great country. Um, we don't wish ill will on anybody in Germany. However, they wasted a half a trillion dollars on coal, oil, and natural gas uh, to get through one winter. And anybody who thinks that the, the, the luck of the weather somehow validates the sanity of, of, the, current, of, of the current energy policy is just they're, just, they're just not seeing reality. I mean, how much more do you need to see? And so for, for half that amount, they could have built out a generation's worth of nuclear power plants and been, and been done with it. And in fact, let's be also be very clear what they did. They bought every BTU of energy from any source they could get it, regardless of the price, or the carbon intensity. And for the month of December, Germany had one of the dirtiest grids in Europe, despite having yeah. the deepest penetration of renewable energy. And, and we wrote a piece on um, on solar, sort of calculating what the sort of energy payback period is for solar, because that's another hyper-political number. Um, a piece was called Solar Calculator, and we published it in November. Um, the, the capacity factor for German solar averaged out through the year. Um, and for those listening, uh, that don't know what capacity factor is. That is the integral of the total amount of energy you produce divided by the nameplate capacity of what you could produce under ideal conditions. And the capacity factor for nuclear is usually in the 90, 90%, 90 plus percent if you run your plants well. And for German solar integrated across the whole year, it's 11%. Um, in the best run US industrial solar fields, um, which dot the Sun Belt, no no coincidence. Um, they can get up to thirty percent capacity factor. Um, so you're basically to, guaranteed to overbuild the stuff. Well, you have to, but yeah. even even then, during the the doldrums hmm. um, of Germany, there was no solar being produced at all. Um, hmm. No matter how much capacity you have, look, sun doesn't shine at night. Right. And and Germany has the solar incidence of of roughly Maine. Yeah. Well, the, the, and that's where all this stuff matters to me is like, you know, it's it's more than a cultural war. It is material in nature because what the political for the the Venn diagram of the people that want to electrify everything, the Venn diagram of them and the people that never, ever want to build another fossil fuel plant, never, ever want to mine or frack or, uh, you know, take any fossil fuel out of the ground and never want to keep a nuclear plant open or open a new one, it's almost the same circle. These people have no plan. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind, like, for example, I wouldn't mind um, if every, the average American got more kilowatts per person per year, because I think that is what we need to, to lift people out of poverty is that we're going to need more energy for everybody um, to raise the standard of living for the average American. But we're not doing that. We're we're electrifying everything, but we're also making things more dependent on the weather and more dependent on capacity that will never come. Uh, you know, because like these environments, like in our area, we live in a very kind of uh, hippie, uh, 
uh, hippie, you know, aging hippie area. Back to the land. Back to the land, you know. <laughs> The, the birthplace of the environmental New York city uh, idiots who think that they can go back to the farm and live in a Or organic farm. lives. Yeah. 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 So these people, they love, you know, they love the idea of electrifying everything, but they also hate the idea of any kind of power plant. Like they this area is legendary for blocking nuclear plants, shutting down Nadine point, uh, blocking pumped hydro, which could actually be a giant renewable energy battery for them. If we actually, if they actually wanted to build, you know, renewables, and so what what's happening is that everything is getting pushed onto poorer counties, um, like the uh, the Indian Point was replaced by natural gas plants, which are in much poorer areas than Westchester, and then the, all the solar and wind stuff, um, they're going to the the poorest, you know, rural counties in New York State, uh, where these farms are barely breaking even. And they're they're giving them a good deal. They're saying, "Hey, like, stop making food. Let's make, uh, you know, let's cover that land with with solar panels and wind." Farmers are taking the money because what other choice do they have? And then, uh, so all everything's getting clustered in these uh, poor areas. And then the the side effect is that also there's less food being produced. Um, you know, it's it's harder and harder to be a, a farmer who actually grows food for people to eat. Yeah. So let, let's be very clear. If I could design a city or live in a city or an area, a region, let's say a county, where they had nuclear and electricity was reliable and it was cheap. I would be more than happy to have a home with heat pumps in it, with induction cooking, and to drive a plug-in hybrid where I have the minimal amount of battery I need to displace 90 plus percent of my fossil fuels. Um, and that would work and I would be comfortable. My resistance to, the, to changing my natural gas powered furnace and my stove is I don't believe that the other part of that deal is on offer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, if, if I thought that the place where I lived had uh, engineers as leaders who understood the need, like it give Ontario its credit, like they have nuclear and hydro and it's their capacity factors are very high and the grid is very reliable and modern. I would be more than happy to electrify everything. It's possible. And in fact, it's probably the solution to the equation that we mentioned earlier, which is standard of living divided by CO2 emissions. The answer is nuclear power. And without, you know, you cannot decarbonize, you certainly can't electrify and decarbonize, but you cannot decarbonize, let alone electrify, uh, without driving right down the middle into nuclear energy. And so our acid test for seriousness of the environmental movement is what, what their stance is on nuclear power. And there are many who are coming around, let's be clear, like we don't want to lump everybody into the to uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute bucket, <laughs> but the Rocky Mountain Institute loses its credibility a priori with me yeah. because of their legendary and notorious and decades long opposition to nuclear power, which ironically has done more to keep people yeah. in poverty um, than, than anything anything that they've been able to um, to get done on the renewable energy side. That's for sure. I mean, the quintessential thing to me is that you can't build more solar energy with solar energy and wind energy right solar and wind you can't build more with that it's an it's a inherently entropic uh source of energy where if we switch over to 100 percent, we're eventually we're just gonna all die because yeah i mean and i think the people in power who who know uh better know that know that that's the case and that we're never going to be able to get rid of fossil well, fuel uh with with 100 renewables is just not not possible but well, well here's the math let's put some math yeah. to it so the piece we wrote solar calculator is an important one because if forget about the financial payback and whether it makes sense for a consumer 
to put you know a solar array on their homes with government subsidies and tax benefits and all the things that come with it. The energy payback, in other words, the amount of energy you need to put in up front, the time for that to get paid back is a critical parameter. Mm-hmm. It's also, because it is the critical weakness of renewable power, a hyper-political number with all kinds of phony scientific publications that do everything in their power to make that payback period as short as possible. And in the piece, Solar Calculator, we, we describe how the production of solar-grade polysilicon is one of the most energy-intense hmm. industrial processes in the world. And we give the example of Hemlock Semiconductor, one of the three remaining polysilicon plants in the U.S. It's in the middle of Michigan. It is the largest consumer of electricity in the state by a wide margin, despite all of the chemical industry that's there and the automotive assembly industry that's there. Hemlock Semiconductor is an energy hog. Why is that? Most of the energy goes into taking metallurgical grade polysilicon, 98%, and making it seven nines pure for use in solar, 99.99999 plus percent pure. That's a huge entropic penalty that you have to pay. Now, our view is it's probably about five years to get that energy back. Nuclear power is six weeks. Hmm. So what does that mean? If you want to change 10% of your electricity to solar in one year, you have to spend 50% of that year's energy budget to do it. Yeah. Whereas if you want to convert 10% of your electricity to nuclear in one calendar year, you have to spend 1%. Yeah. Okay. It's literally 50 times better. Five years versus six weeks. And you you need fossil fuels to build solar panels. These aren't perpetual motion machines. Well, I mean, if you had enough of them, you could, I suppose. Hmm. But uh, these are not perpetual motion machines. And and so all of these, you know, net zero by 20, all these goals are just unrealistic from the beginning. And as we wrote in another piece, people will just start walking away from these these, uh, commitments, quote unquote, in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and unfortunately, uh, something... The only way for people to learn from this is to have some pain from it, because I think right now it's yeah, most people are very uh, disconnected from where their power comes from. They just press the light switch. It goes on. They get a bill later. Sometimes it's higher. Sometimes it's lower. Um, but there, the, there has to be. Uh, and I think that's that's the hesitation, uh, even in like New York State, what's been slow pedaling uh, the. Uh, climate action stuff on the government side is not because they're in the pocket of fossil fuels and you know paid, bought and paid for by the fossil fuel companies. They know, I think they're advisors and they know that if they actually adopt what the left is, is demanding from them, if they adopt it tomorrow and implement it, they will lose all the power that they have. Uh, they're, they will be you know run out of office because things will be really bad. Uh, and I think that's unfortunately like the, the people that are slow pedaling, uh, you know, kind of t- paying lip service to what the environmentalists want, but are slow pedaling it. Like I kind of picture Joe Manchin. I mean, Joe Manchin, even like people like that are the only <laughs> they're the last line of defense, you know, especially if if Democrats control the government. Uh, they're the last line of defense that are like slowing this stuff down just enough. But because the only way, the only way that it evaporate it bursts is if people experience pain from it, and I obviously don't want that to happen to people. But um, you know, the, it's it's getting uh, it's it's getting closer and closer to being a major problem. Like I know in New York State, 
uh, NY ISO put out a report saying that the margin for error is just getting tighter and tighter, uh, where they, they have less and less uh, wiggle room. Uh, and, you know, the more extreme that a, a cold snap is, like if we if we just have five or seven extremely cold days in a row, um, it could bring down everything and there'd be a major, major problem. Um, so that's scary. I mean, these, you know, th there has to be some, some principled opposition to this agenda um, because they, they've been winning nonstop for decades now. So let's just take a look at what Joe Biden did um, when oil prices started to go up and most alarmingly to him, that resulted in higher gasoline prices. Now say what you will about Biden. He's an old school politician. And I do believe that he understands that the price of the pump uh, is inversely proportional to the, his popularity and likelihood that his party would maintain power. And a year ahead of the midterms, Biden did everything in his power to flood the market with oil, draining the strategic petroleum reserves, cutting deals with dictators in Venezuela, flying to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, begging for OPEC plus to increase production. Um, and it worked. Look, it largely worked. Like, I think the fact that oil came down a buck and change uh, per gallon, or sorry, gasoline came down a buck and change per gallon, um, dented a lot of the negative political impact just ahead of the midterms. And it's no coincidence that the, the draining of the strategic petroleum reserves to the tune of 1 million barrels a day was scheduled to end shortly after the election. That's proof that A, he doesn't want to take the pain, and B, he recognizes the consequence of, of imparting the pain onto the populace. And so we are stuck in this do loop of uh, platitudes without the pain. And that's why we got ahead of this heat pump phenomenon. And again, sometimes you just get lucky that the deluge of propaganda around it made us look like we were very prescient um, uh, because they are literally coming for a home near you. And this is where the rubber is going to meet the road. Like yeah. um, how much of your personal standard of living are you willing to sacrifice in the in the worshiping of Gaia. And we suspect that for 90% plus of the population, it's very little. Yeah. It's it's just not a winning political position. And so they have to do it by subterfuge or by shame yeah. um, or by saying that you're pro-childhood asthma. Pick your favorite propaganda tool. So, well, something I'm starting to notice is on different devices, like on the iPhone and Xbox, uh, now they have, they're, they're introducing these things that are kind of like net metering where... Um, in order to to charge properly or to download updates, uh, if if it's at night or something, they'll say, "Oh, well, we're going to detect when there's more renewable energy on the grid, and that's when the device will power on to do the firmware updates." I don't know <laughs> yeah. if you've seen that, but well, I mean, this is the small step in the direction towards um, controlling your consumption by carbon footprint budget, right? That's coming yeah. next. And, well, yeah, uh, and that's what I'm that's what I'm predicting. You know, like the nightmare from. Uh, what was that movie in the '60s with Hal the robot? Yeah, I forget oh, the name. Yeah, I, I can't. Remember, but yeah. basically, Hal, you know, Alexa is gonna like. I'm gonna say, oh, Alexa, you know, turn on my uh, my electric was induction. Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. Yeah. yeah, 2001. And she'll say, I don't think I can do that, Alex. Uh, there's the sun isn't shining, yeah. and <laughs> solar panels are not providing enough energy. Uh, the 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 weather is expected to turn on Wednesday. Uh, and that's when you'll be able to well, cook. That's the scary thing. I know you brought up sort of a dividing up the, you know, carbon allowance per per person. And, I, you know, maybe that might work in a society that's run by, you know, pro, a pro-humanity government, right? Where we're actually working to actually be able to increase that amount. 
Um, but but that's kind of puts us in a trap, right? When we when we cater to this sort of carbon allowance. I mean, I, I don't want pollution. You know, I, I think that we need to maintain a habitable planet and world for ourselves. Um, but that's what usually technology actually does push us in that direction of creating a more habitable world for human beings. So this idea, I think, is a Gaia worship idea that we can either progress technologically um, and kill Mother Gaia, kill the Earth, or um, we can degrow, we can degrow ourselves and return to the land and reduce our footprint. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. And I think that that's sort of a a, a wrong uh, ideology axiom or ideological uh, ideological line that people take. Um, and it also brings to brings to mind Africa and how a Africa needs to increase their their carbon footprint. You know, they need to pull themselves out of out of poverty. And it's not fair that we were able to create this massive carbon footprint um, to pull ourselves out. And now we can reduce it. But they should I think they should be able to do the same thing, right? Raise themselves up out of poverty. And then once, you know, once they sort of modernize their industry, then maybe think the way we do about uh, technology and reducing car our carbon emissions or what, whatever metric, right? Optimizing yeah. metrics. The developing world is not going to listen to John Kerry, right? Um, period. Um, if you think about the deal that um, is on offer here, which is um, we're going to freeze everything in place and you're not going to develop, um, that's just going to ignore him, like uh, as he flies in and out on his on his private jet. Yeah. Um, it's just not going to happen. And back to the schizophrenia here of, of the government, if you think about it, five, both parties, back to this whole popularity and, and do you want to take your medicine, have encouraged for decades home ownership in this country. This is a bipartisan. Look, just look at all of the government policies. Um, mortgage rates, uh, interest are tax, is tax deductible. Um, the banks are encouraged to lend freely, especially for first-time homeowners. Mm -hmm. The entire culture is oriented around owning a home as a milestone of success in your career. And, and so this, on the one hand, you know, attacking it on the other hand, pro, you know, pro, promoting it, it just doesn't make any sense. It, and so it has something has to give. And as you say, until they've seen enough pain and look, the developing world, Africa, India, rural China, Indonesia, the, 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 forget about it. Like they're not, they're going to um, smile and go to the conferences and take the cash and and then go about and burn as much coal and natural gas and oil as they can get their hands on too. Please do. Yeah, I yeah, love as it. As they should. As they, they should. I would love that. I would love if everyone could have. I, I think it would be great if as many people as possible could have a single family home and a car, <laughs> and then a grocery store nearby that they can drive to and buy the food that they need, and then go home and be able to cook. Uh, even if the sun isn't shining and, and to raise their kids to live a better life than they had and to get yeah, them, yeah. you know, as I like to tell my kids, you're, we're going to get you straight teeth and a college education and the rest is up to you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh, we hope that they do well and obviously we'll help them if they need it. But the point is, you know, this yeah. is sort of the point of life. The, the human endeavor is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy and you need to waste energy to impose order. And the amount of order that you can impose on your local environment is a literal definition of your standard of living. And all yeah. humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. And who the hell are we to decide which among us gets to have a good standard of living and who doesn't? As we like to say to the Malthusians of the professional environmental movement, you first. If you would <laughs> like, if you would like less humans on the planet, knock yourself out. That's right. Uh, excellent. Well, yeah. Very well said. Well, yeah, I just wanted to say too about um, you know you brought up Biden and. 
Build Back Better and uh, the IRA, so the Inflation Reduction Act, and uh, what's the other one? And also they they induce some kind of wartime production act. Um, sure. To build build, I think batteries and stuff. I mean, we have some we have something like that going on here nearby. Is that there? Uh, you know, there's a, a both a lithium and a zinc battery factory proposed, which is heavily heavily dependent on getting like tons of money from the federal government um, to develop batteries and stuff. Um, who knows if it'll actually happen? But uh, I think what I wanted to bring up is this idea of of growth, where um, you know, with, with these these people who champion all these plans, they say, "Oh, well, it's economic growth, and that's good. We're bringing back, you know, manufacturing to the United States." But I would argue that it's kind of a fake growth, where, uh, for example, you know, you mentioned in your piece about the HVAC technicians and the electricians who are going to do you know really well from retrofitting millions of American homes to be all electric, but it's this, it's this, this unnecessary, it's a, it's like a waste. It's such a waste of, of resources to incentivize this uh, when we're uh, there's no actual plan to provide the power to these homes. So it's kind of like a, the sideways or downward move where sure we're technically spending all this money and we're employing all these people, but we're not actually putting it, we're not putting it into the world to be something that uh, causes more prosperity and more productive capacity, we're actually lessening it. We're retarding our uh, productive capacity because we're, uh, you know, for example, the the batteries that these people are championing, there's simply not enough batteries uh, to be able to support a, a renewable grid. It's like a make believe tech. They they yeah. believe so much in in battery technology. And yet that they totally ignore nuclear technology. It's like kind of this weird, well, why not look at what you already, what, what already exists instead of putting all your eggs in this fantasy basket, right? Well, it's worse than that. So we wrote a piece in late December called No Assembly Required, where we highlighted how the Chinese have taken over all of the manufacturing aspects of the green revolution, quote unquote, whereas we're left with doing mere assembly here. You know, you take the panels and you put them on people's homes. Those are transient low pay jobs. They don't help a community organize around, say, a nuclear plant, as our friend Dr. Chris Kiefer of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy likes to point out. There's hundreds of high-paying jobs at these nuclear power plants that last decades. And you know, uh, if you just look at the solar industry, for example, the 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 molecular the movement of molecules goes from the production of polysilicon to the production of ignits to the production of wafers to the assembly of solar cells and the assembly of PV modules. And China dominates. 98% of ignit and 97% of wafer. They also have 72% of polysilicon. So what does that mean? Even the polysilicon that's produced in the US gets shipped to China, commingled with polysilicon produced in the slave labor regions, and then gets uh, manufactured into ignuts and sliced into wafers and assembled into solar cells, which they also have 81% um, of the capacity for. But basically they control the hardest parts, the value add parts, the manufacturing parts. Um, because they decided to take over this market and flooded the world. I was in the industry when this happened. I saw it happen, and I've, I've seen the results of it. Um, and so the Build Back Better really provides mostly you know, support for assembly, which doesn't get us off of our addiction to Chinese you know, materials. And so, it, again, it's just another example of, uh, I think, a complete lack of understanding within our political leaders, which is bipartisan, um, uh, of what's truly needed to re-onshore these materials. Um, and that's just polysilicon. I mean, we wrote a piece about 
this discovery of an amazing lithium mine in Maine that will never get developed. It's 10 miles from a ski resort. NIMBYism will win. And I guarantee you, if you went to that ski resort, you'd see all kinds of Teslas uh, in the parking lot as people are enjoying their skiing on the weekend. Um, they're mandating EV adoption in the state while also prohibiting the permitting of all new mines in the state, which is the ultimate proof of hypocrisy. So again, this can't go on forever. One of our phrases is that which can't go on forever usually doesn't. Um, and so uh, this won't either. There will be enough pain felt somewhere where politics will have to change. It's just unfortunate that we have to go through that pain cycle to get to the sane, sane cycle uh, of the other side. Yeah, I will say, you know, we are a, a very pro-China podcast. And I, I think I think we disagree about uh, the degree of the, uh, the the labor situation in Xinjiang. Um, because yeah, we just we just had uh, David Fishman on our podcast, and he's in the energy sector as well. And he he's an American who works with China, so he he has a different perspective on that. Sure. I think overall agrees. I think we can all agree with the the fact that we want well. Uh, what, what, whatever your view on the labor situation, you yeah. can't argue that Biden claims to be opposed it and is doing something about it, i.e. Sure. imposing sanctions and holding up all of these solar yeah. panels at the border. And, 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 and certainly, you know, what when that when that talking point is used in the favor of building solar panels in America, what's left out is that it's often American prison labor that is building solar panels, uh, you know, from some of the largest companies in the United States. Well, and also the fact that he brought up that that we do have these minerals that we could mine for, but we also have a huge environmental movement that is yeah. gung ho on preventing yeah. any uh, preventing that from happening here. Yeah, so. we we had we had dozens of ignorant and wafer factories in the U.S. until a little over a decade ago. Period, and it's all got shut down uh, because of dumping, basically, of artificially cheap solar panels on the market. Like I worked the solar industry when that happened. I saw what was going on. I had firsthand knowledge of it. Um, I have distinct memories of calling on the procurement teams where we had our intellectual property outright stolen from Chinese competitors and they were undercutting us on price. And um, uh, one of these companies who will remain nameless, but is a big member of the COP uh, 27, you know, they have their big booth at the, at the at the global warming conventions and stuff, looked me in the eye and said, oh, that's for the courts to decide. Wow. Like, even though they knew it was stolen, they happily took the 35% price cut. And how can you compete um, when the, they don't have to do research? They just take your technology. And so, you well, know, we could agree to disagree on on China's role in, in the broader well, market, but it, it's a reality. Like, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And, cer and certainly, um, you know, we, when we talk about the importance of nuclear, um, you know, you can ask, we can ask, them, well, what country is doing the most in the entire world to, China. Build, to yeah. build nuclear and to bring it? To the developing world and yeah and and i think um that's something um where you know they, they build the solar panels because the west has set up for whatever reason the west has set up this giant uh delusion that buying solar panels is the most important thing to do and we go into debt to buy these solar panels that don't even work while we also you know spend hundreds of millions of dollars on you know demonizing china and uh putting military pressure on china and imagine if the United States could actually work with China to uh, bring some of that nuclear expertise, because they're the ones actually building and advancing in technology now. Imagine if we could actually work with China to build nuclear plants both here and around the world uh, to the benefit of everybody. I mean, that's well, I mean, that's, it, that's ultimately what we would want. China is, is with China, you have to look at what they're doing, not what they're saying. And they're building 
the designing and building up to 150 new nuclear reactors as we speak, and India is following suit, and Japan is restarting their nuclear fleet. The rest of the world that isn't overcome with this sort of cult of, of negativity and, and pessimism about humans' ability to flourish when given the proper uh, energy allocation, um, they're getting busy solving the problem. And we're over here politicizing and arguing uh, with with ourselves over it. Exactly. I think that's what it what it really boils down to is is that is that underpinning ideology. That's really where we have to. That's the really where people like you and uh, and us like we have to show that there are like the vast amount of uh, majority of people in the United States in the Western world aren't anti-human. We're not, and we don't want we don't want a government that is run by people who think that way right that's like i feel like that's the only way out of this mess right well and to say again to be very clear like i i used to travel to china a fair bit in my life and i have dozens and dozens of friends who are chinese and it's the same thing i'm sure with um with people who have lots of friends in say russia or iran or pick your favorite geopolitical enemy um i've never met a chinese person that i couldn't have a meal with and didn't enjoy talking to that i wasn't interested in same with russia same with iran same with with Cuba, like the populations were never at war with each other. Yeah, um, and right. this is this is really just an artifact of government and real politic and and yeah. and so on. And so um, we're not really a geopolitical newsletter, but we're certainly aware of geopolitics and, and the role that it plays. But as far as humans go, like I, my beef with China is with the Chinese Communist Party, not with with the people of China that I've had the privilege of working with. I used to lead a large team in China. I used to travel there quarterly. Um, always had a really great time when I was there, still good friends with many of them. It's how we get inside look as to how the COVID situation was unraveling a little bit and and the, the pivot that they've made you know, from uh, zero COVID to completely wide open came within a span of days and, and was validated by our friends in Beijing and Shanghai predominantly. So like we're, we could, there will be a new government someday in China. There'll be a new government here. They're looking at our government the same way that we look at theirs and, and not without some justification. Um, and so um, it is what it is. It's a shame. But it, it's also, you know, we, the governments like this come and go uh, and the people persist. That is true. That is true. It, it really is the, the will of the people that moves that moves uh, world history. So uh, that's that is the important thing at the end of the day is is the people. Um, so, yeah, I like I like that we can agree on on that on that on that tack. Um, certainly, though, we we have our criticisms uh, within within the house. Right. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the issues are coming from within within our own house. And we got to get our own house in order, I believe, um, as far as it just we're we're run by ir irrational Malthusians. You know, that's yeah. that's it. And we got to We got to get rid of these guys. <laughs> we yeah, got I mean, to grow the Malthusians. Yeah. Peacefully through the ballot box, through, you know, appropriate that's right. uh, appropriate. Um political uh, activity and, and yes. discourse. And this is one of the driving forces for Doomberg is to educate and 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 some of our pieces clearly resonate with our subscribers. And and I think we've had an effect. You know, I think we have a fair number of people in the US government who read our pieces. And we've had some uh, inbound requests from staffers of congressmen and at both state and 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 national level. And and you know everyone does their part and and we do our little part on the corner of the internet. And look for all of our warts, you know, it's still a wonderful place to live. Uh, I'm still very proud to to live in this country, to do our part. I pay my taxes and and clean up the garbage in my front lawn and try to have pride of ownership of my home and, yep. and to try to invest in our community and and uh, see our children off to better lives and then uh, leave the planet with as few regrets as possible. So, you know, that's our goal. Well, something we're big on 
here at the Space Commune podcast is uh, peace through development. And I think uh, in the United States, if we were to have energy abundance, you know, cheap, abundant energy for people to live and work with, um, I, I think some of the things that some of the pressure that we have um, put on us from the government and from the media to, to demonize other countries and to, to seek regime change and to seek you know, resources in other countries. Like we have so many resources in the United States that we're not touching mm. um, because we're, uh, we're rely, you know, we're, we're trying to play r- risk with the, the rest of the world. Um, but imagine if we did just concentrated on our own country, developed our country, um, you know, our, our chances for peace might be greater. And I think another important thing to, to talk about, like you brought up loving the country and we very much love our country, you know, our, our, we're driven because we want our country to do better and we know we can and we take a lot of pride in in being Americans and and loving the American people and knowing that we uh we criticize the government because we love the people and we love the country and we know we can do better um so I and again that's like something the left is hell-bent on destroying right our you know a lot of people's fear monger about nationalism but i, I think having a national identity and, and a, sen- a real sense of patriotism that is what's going to lift us out of this sort of the doom right the the doomerism and the doom scrolling and the malthusianism well you know we're hedged either way so it works out for us <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh, in all seriousness look if, if, i don't want to sound too partisan here like if uh if the republicans take back control of government we'll be the first to criticize their mistakes too it's sure. uh you know the the whole point of citizen journalism and citizen activism is to invest in the political uh, inner workings of the country with the hope of of convincing people of the soundness of your arguments, which is why, of course, this whole cancer culture is just a cancer really on our on our political discourse. But it really, is. Um, but um, but so you know that we're going to do our part. You guys are doing your part, um, and ultimately, we'll be okay. When I when I reflect back on like the, the late '60s, you know, uh, today's. We're having recording this on Martin Luther King Day, and and um, when you just think about how how the social fabric of the country was ripping apart back then, the Vietnam War, the assassination of of John Kennedy and his brother, and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and pick your favorite, and and the histories of those are pretty ugly when you go back and look at the documents, and you realize just how how evil, for example, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was. Um, the country survived. The country survived the the seventies. We survived the go-go days of the 80s. We survived Bill Clinton and his impeachment, and we survived Donald Trump, and we'll survive Joe Biden and and the country. I, I, not to take it too lightly, and you know, obviously you have to do your part, but I I, I do think that um, integrated over time, things will generally will probably be pretty okay. I like that. That's very optimistic outlook. I like that. I like that cool. a lot. I think we have, I think we have staying power. I think you're right. You know, so somebody uh, brought up the, the maid, I was talking about the maid thing in Canada. I don't know if you saw about that, the medically assisted suicide, Sure. uh, which is, it's a literally eugenics program. It's terrifying. And somebody said, oh, it's coming in the, you know, we're going to wait till it comes to the U S and I said, I don't, I don't think the American people would tolerate that. I think that we, there's a certain spark in, uh, in us as Americans where there is a line that's going to be crossed. Um, and I think, yeah, the people in power know that that you can only fuck with us so much uh, until we have that revolutionary spirit in us where we say, no, we the people are not going to put up with this. Um, yeah. So it's, I think it's going to we're going to hit that point eventually. Hope so, too. Yeah, it's good to be optimistic. Good to start the year on an optimistic note.
you've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been talking to Doomberg. Doomberg, uh, uh, where can people find you? Uh, tell us all about your your work. Yeah, great guys. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, we we write at doomberg.substack.com. Um, we publish six to eight articles a month on energy finance and the economy at large. We are 100% subscriber supported, which means we are uh, unimpacted by ads and sponsorships and we can have complete editorial freedom over the pieces that we write, which does allow us to get a bit more provocative uh, than we might otherwise be if we had uh, big big ads and big sponsors to, to account for. So all of our pieces are um, subscriber supported. Uh, we have... Um, We've become, you know, the, the number one finance substack in the world in, in that very uh, interesting and lucrative category, which has been a huge blessing for us. And so, and it's because of our ability to get on podcasts like this and promote our work. And so I really appreciated the opportunity to be on with you guys and best of luck with your show as well. And uh, looking forward to coming back sometime when we have uh, new and interesting things to say. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, very, very glad to have you. And thank you for being so generous with your time. I'm sure, you, you know, you've got a lot of stuff going on. So uh, I'll just write another piece. So Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear what you guys put out on the, the gas stove issue and, and, and everything else moving forward. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.